0: Welcome to Kelly Drye's Full Spectrum podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Drye Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryefullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Welcome to the Kelly Dry Communications Group's podcast. USAC is going to audit you, now what? I'm Steve Augustino, partner in the Communications Group, and I have with me Denise Smith, special counsel in our group. Today we're going to discuss how to handle an audit of the universal service programs administered by the Universal Service Administrative Company, or USAC. Our discussion will provide an overview of the audit process identify the principal signposts along the way, and identify a few of the dangerous curves you might need to navigate during the course of an audit. Now, we're going to talk about contributor audits today, but the procedures and principles that
1: we discuss apply equally to beneficiary audits as well. Right. And Steve, of course, the most common question we get is, how does USAC select the companies that it's going to audit? USAC Basically, has two buckets of potential audited companies. First is purely random, and the second is that Usac wants to look at a particular issue. So those potential audits are a bit more targeted. Denise, actually, I want to go back to the targeted category.
0: Uh, One of the questions we do get a lot is about companies that file revisions to their forms, Mm -hmm. and the question they always ask us right is, if I file a revision to my 499, am
1: I going to get audited? Right. And no, you won't get, you know, like I said, USAC identifies what particular issues it wants to audit, but it does not select its audited companies based on a revision to the filing. USAC sort of already knows who they're going to pick.
0: Great, great. Okay. Now, what we're going to do now is we're going to jump into the the second aspect of our program here today and talk about the audit process. So we're going to walk you through the steps of the audit and give you some ideas and some things to expect if you've gotten an audit letter from USAC. Denise, I'm going to let you start with the audit announcement
1: letter. Mm -hmm. Right. The audit announcement letter kicks off the audit process, and this letter really contains key information. It will identify the auditor. As I noted, the audit may be conducted in-house by IAD or could be an outside auditor, such as Grant Thornton. The letter will also address the scope of the audit. So, for example, the letter may state that the auditors will be looking at a 2014 Form 499-A filing. And this issue, information about the scope of the audit is critical because all of the responses are tied to that particular time frame. The letter will also identify general information categories that are going to be reviewed. And this provides a bit of a roadmap to the filer so they know what the auditors are going to be looking at. These might include revenue and product classifications, recovery of USF contributions, or completeness and accuracy of the Form 499-A. And finally, the announcement letter will include initial document requests. And these document requests can include a request for a product listing, a reseller customer listing, et cetera, and the audit letter will announce the due dates for those document requests.
0: Yeah. How extensive are those requests? Like, what's the lift to get those done?
1: They can be pretty extensive, because in addition to sort of providing those customer and product listings, you also have to provide quite a bit of information about the process used to prepare the Form 499-A, and that's a bit of a lengthy questionnaire.
0: All right. And then I'll take the second step of this, which is what USAC calls or the auditor calls the entrance conference. It's typically done by telephone these Mm -hmm. days. Used to be they would actually come out and do it on site, but that's not that common anymore. During this entrance conference, that's when the auditor walks through the process itself, will do its version of Mm -hmm. a podcast, explain the purpose of the audit and set the timeframes for it. In my experience, typically their target is about 12 to 15 months from whenever they initiate the audit. From the auditee's perspective or the filer's perspective, this is really the right time to address your questions about the scope of the audit, the time frame for a response, negotiate any specific requests. You know, we've tried to narrow some requests sometimes. This is the place to do that. And if you have any issues involving the availability of individuals who are key to the audit, this is really where you go with that. Right, Denise? I mean, you've seen this be more substantive, and think.
1: Right, right. We have. Typically, in the past, the entrance call would be just that, sort of a going over of somewhat of the procedural topics. However, what we've seen in some of the recent third-party audits is the auditors really are trying to get into what I consider to be the heart of some of the issues they're going through. How are you classifying revenues? What databases are you using? How are you pulling that information? And that's not something that we typically saw in that initial entrance conference. And then the third step is? Right. The third step is the site visit. And this is just a continuation of the fact gathering process that began with the document request. However, at this point, the auditor has reviewed those documents and now wants to gain a better understanding of the processes involved in preparing the form 499A. And they do this by conducting on-site interviews and reviewing the filer's systems. So the auditors will actually go out to the filer's company site. They're usually there for about four to five days, although that process can be a little shorter or longer depending on the complexity of the filer's operations. While there, the auditors will want to interview key personnel, such as the person completing the Form 499-A, the person that issues the bills. And if any of these functions are outsourced, the auditors will want to talk to those third-party vendors. The auditors will also want to see how 499-A-related activities are done. And by this, I mean, they will want to know what databases are used to gather information for the 499A, how are the queries run, those type of questions. And the auditors will often ask for screenshots of those systems. And they will be taking all of that information back to review. And that leads to the next step of the process.
0: Yeah, yeah. And this is also where I've seen, like, you really have to watch out for issue creep, right? Mm -hmm. The auditors on site will see something and it might not be directly related to the audit, but Mm -hmm. they'll ask about it, and you've got to be ready to to deal with that. But once you get through that site visit, the next step is what they call the field work, but this is where the path and the timing of the audit really becomes a lot less structured and a lot less predictable. Uh, The audits are doing the field work that is the process of reviewing and analyzing the information that they collect during the audit. Now, during this time period, which can be six months, sometimes more, for them to complete, uh, they'll provide occasional inquiries to the filer. You know, questions will come sort of seemingly out of the blue. Hey, we need something such and such, or can you provide this information? This is where they're seeking clarification or they're seeking additional information that they need to complete their audit work. So you really need to be prepared for these types of questions, you need to be listening. I think we'll go into this a little bit more detail later. But this is where you get some clues as to the issues, potential risks for you, and areas where your showing might not be fully sufficient. One thing I want to highlight in the data request area as well is an improvement in the process from the last couple of years is that USAC, particularly IAD, has been providing an issues list and kind of a recurring resolution list on this. And so I found that to be very helpful. It provides you a means of making sure that you know what's happening, what they're thinking, what they're focusing on. And so there are far fewer surprises when the audit findings come around, at least as long as you're paying attention Mm -hmm. to what's there. Which really brings me to the next step and the almost complete step of the audit. Once they finish the field work, the auditor will provide the filer with one or more draft audit findings to review. These kinds of conclusions come in two forms. One is findings. Those are conclusions that a filer has failed to satisfy a certain obligation or not followed a certain rule, or in a beneficiary context, I know we're talking mostly about contributors here, but that the beneficiary doesn't have supporting documentation that they're supposed to have. That will be a finding. The second conclusion is an other matter, and that's used to identify best practices, things that they note which aren't technically rule violations or, more commonly, issues which are uncertain areas of the law, where the law is unclear or the standards themselves are unclear. From a filer's perspective, an other matter is much better than a finding because an other matter will not have financial impact. So you would prefer to have one as an other matter Mm -hmm. rather than a finding. Now, what the findings are, it's a written description of their conclusions. It lists the criteria, or the rules that are applied, it lists the factual findings that were made, and the impact, if any, of the finding itself. It's all provided there. You as the filer are given an opportunity to respond to that, and this is really your first formal opportunity to do something. Um, it's typically given about two to three weeks to supply that response, so you need to be prepared, but if you've been following the other pieces, it really won't be that much of a surprise. Your response can be something as short as a paragraph or two, we've covered this, or we've already addressed this, or it might be many, many pages long if you have a legal argument to make. So it really depends upon the circumstances of the particular instances. But the key piece is that your response to the findings will become a part of the audit report itself. They are inserted verbatim into the final audit report. So... Whatever you want to say, this is the right time to come forward and say those. And hopefully you're convincing USAC that they have made a mistake in those findings and you're convincing them to narrow it in some manner.
1: Right. And that leads to the sort of final steps of this process. Now that the company has seen those draft audit findings, you've had an opportunity to respond, the process is not yet completed. At this point, the report still needs to be finalized and approved by the USAC board. So the auditors will be presenting that draft audit findings along with the carrier's responses to the USAC board, which meets only quarterly, um, for their review and approval. At this point, the board can still make changes to that audit report. For example, if they disagree with an auditor's finding, they can change that audit finding. Or they can even choose not to adopt a particular finding. So what the fireman may have seen as the draft audit report may be slightly different when the final report comes out. Once the board approves the audit report, that will be presented to the carrier. And this is where timing really becomes critical because the carrier has only 60 days from the issuance of that report to appeal any of those findings. And it's interesting to note that a recent FCC change mandates that the appeal be made back to USAC for them to consider or essentially to reconsider. Now, if a carrier is not satisfied with USAC's appeal decision, the carrier does still have another opportunity to seek further appeal, and that will be directly to the FCC. Again, there's a 60-day filing window, so a filer really needs to keep that in mind. It's also important to note that at this point, when an appeal is filed with the FCC, the existence of the audit and the appeal will now be public, although the content of that final audit report will not be public unless the filer has chosen to include that in their appeal. The FCC technically has ninety days to take action on that appeal, but in our experience, we have seen the FCC's response time take significantly longer, in many times exceeding one to two years.
0: Yeah, absolutely, which brings up one of the questions of what the filer should be doing in the interim, and I, I think we should talk a little bit about that right. briefly. A couple of different things in a contributor audit the conclusion of the audit is the filer must pay more than they had paid before. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you wouldn't be appealing it generally. Right. So during that pendency of the appeal, you've got to decide as a filer whether you're going to pay those additional amounts that have been assessed as a result of the audit. And I'm just going to talk about the USF part of it, and mm-hmm. then I think I'll let you talk about the, the other funds that impact this. But the filer has two choices, really. You can pay it and then seek a refund if you win the appeal down the line. Or you can withhold the disputed amount, the amount that's subject to your appeal. Now, if you're appealing part of it but not the entire report, you should be paying the undisputed Mm -hmm. portion. It's really only the disputed portion that we're talking about here. Just take note that if you take this course and don't pay the disputed amount, USAC is going to issue invoices for that amount. It is going to issue those late notices, the 30-day, the 60-day, and the 90-day notice, What will be different is that they will not transfer that debt for collection under the debt collection procedures, and and this is an important piece for many regulated carriers, the FCC will not red-light the filer because of this unpaid debt, so there will be a notation that this debt is owed. Now, if you lose on appeal, you go in the amount plus you owe the interest that had accrued (laughs) during the pendency of the appeal, so it
1: can be significant. Mm -hmm. And right. And as you mentioned, Steve, that's sort of what USAC does. But you're right. The other fund administrators may be issuing invoices depending on the outcome of the audit. And fortunately, they follow somewhat of a similar approach that USAC takes in that the fund administrators are kept apprised by USAC of an appeal filing. So those fund administrators will know that the carrier is appealing the audit decision. And those fund administrators similarly will not refer any unpaid invoices for collection, nor will they refer the filer to red light status right, at the FCC. Right. Which of these funds are we talking about with this? Right. We're talking about the Telecommunications Relay Services Fund, the North American Numbering Plan Fund, and the Local Number Portability Fund. And those all have different administrators from USAC. Now,
0: that's an overview of the process and some of the considerations in the process. This format doesn't allow us to really dig into the common audit issues. I think we'll save that for a future podcast. Mm -hmm. But we would like to talk with you about a few tips to surviving the audit, a couple of ideas. And and I think we're going to definitely continue tag-teaming this, Denise. I'll I'll go on, and then you give me some of your thoughts. First, I think It's important to realize there's no substitute for advanced preparation here. As Vince Lombardi recognized so well, the key to success on the field is practice, practice, practice. So um, it's important here to prepare for your audit before the audit actually occurs. And that means things like making sure you have practices in place to be in compliance with the FCC rules, making sure that you maintain good records on your resellers and obtain annual certifications from each since that is a common issue. Make sure that you document the process that's used for completing the Form 499-A and make that documentation available to the auditor. Make sure you have the work papers that support that, including the sources of data. If you took mm-hmm. for an estimate a piece of information, uh, make sure you have that source as well on this. Those things, when they're dealing with estimates allocations of jurisdiction, allocating revenues across bundled services, it's really important to have those papers and have them easily accessible. And then finally in this be prepared part of it, it's important to pay attention to the Form 49A instructions themselves. Although these instructions are not rules, that is, they don't have the force of law, the auditors do apply them during the audit. So a filer should choose to depart
1: from those rules only after careful consideration. Right. And Steve, those are great points. And another key tip is to make sure that you identify your key personnel that are familiar with the Form 499-A process and also that you retain your financial documentation as I mentioned, during the site visit, the auditors will be coming on site to interview those key personnel. And whoever you have that is going to be responding to those questions, they are a key component of what information is communicated to USAC. So you want to make sure that you have prepared them to make sure that they are responding accurately, but you don't want them to necessarily be too helpful and end up providing information that's beyond the scope of the audit. So you want to make sure that you work with that person and ensure that they can accurately describe the processes that the filer is using. The auditors are also going to be requiring supporting documentation as Steve mentioned. So as soon as you receive that audit announcement letter, you want to make sure that you are retaining your records related to the time frame covered by that audit. And while the audit typically covers no more than one to two years prior, we anticipate that most companies will still have those relevant records, but it is possible that they might have been sent off site or need to be pulled from elsewhere. So you just want to make sure that you can put your hands on those documents. Now, the next tip that we would suggest is that you really pay attention to the questions and document requests that are being asked by the auditors, particularly during the site visit, after the site visit, and during that in-between process where Steve mentioned you might receive requests sporadically. The reason why... Paying attention to these trend-in questions is so important is because they can be your sort of first warning of potential issues that could result in audit findings. So if you're paying attention early, you can be prepared to sort of address those issues, frame them properly, and hopefully avoid an audit finding. And by this, I mean, for example, if you are receiving repeated questions regarding the classification of your reseller revenues and you're getting data requests for reseller certifications, then that's a a flag that resale revenue may be an audit finding. Similarly, if you're being asked about the contribution factor that's used to recover USF from your customers and you're being required to provide customer invoices that specifically identify the surcharge, then again, that's a flag that USF recovery may be an issue. So you really just want to pay attention to the trend in questions and data requests. So Steve, you want to...
0: Yeah, actually, and and a related tip on that is that you want to maintain those lines of communications with the auditors open as much as possible. You want to build a relationship with them, but it's during that field work, before the draft audit findings, that you have a chance really to influence where the auditor goes with this. And so, maintaining that communication and listening to their clues allows you to address that and potentially prevent an. Inquiry from becoming a finding itself. So it's a lot easier to stop these before they're written down mm-hmm. than it is to reverse them once they are written down. And then finally, I, I want to recommend that uh, you make sure once you get the audit request that you keep your regulatory or your legal counsel involved in the audit, whether that's in house or external counsel. There's a tendency sometimes to treat this as a finance issue. This is a tax audit. We're just going to have our tax guys there. And you really need to have experienced legal counsel as well involved in this because many of the criteria will be subject to interpretation or there's a long history on many of the issues, things like the 10% rule for private Mm -hmm. line. Okay, that's important to have experienced counsel know about that, how you treat foreign revenues, how you apply the LEAR, the international exemption, those types of things, you want to get your council involved early so that you can save a significant amount of both time and effort as you get later into the process. Mm -hmm. All right. And um, with that, those are the the basics of the audit, the basics of the audit uh, tips that we have. We want to thank you all for listening to us. We hope that it was very helpful. I encourage you to keep in touch with Kelly Dry and look for additional information. We cover this on our blog on commonlawmonitor.com. We do uh, multiple podcasts, that we'll come back to this issue as well. We have webinars, regular webinars, which cover topics like this as well. So there's Lots of different ways you can connect with us to follow up with us if you have questions. But uh, on behalf of myself, on behalf of Denise Smith, we want to thank you all very much. Thank you. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the
1: views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.